0: There are people here in the audience I know from various walks of life. Um, thank you for being here, my friends. Uh, there are people in the audience I don't know. And I just really thank you guys. Because to come out to see a stranger is like a really cool thing. So thank you. I'm going to read it in a second. But I've made it a priority on my book tour for Real American. This book has been out for just over four weeks. I've been all over the country. I've still, I've, I'm still I'm going to move on beyond L.A. to other places. I'm in the midst every single stuff. I try to... Uh, work with a local organization or ask a bookstore to find a youth poet, um, a writer, someone who's written prose, poetry, or spoken word, um, who's young. So that when I have the privilege and opportunity of being on tour with my book, I have a microphone, an audience, some advertising, that I can step to the side and make room for some of the next generation coming behind me. So, Amaya, I'm thrilled to have you here to kick things off tonight. Without further ado, Amaya Blankenship. Yeah.
1: happy to be here I'm so happy to be opening up for you I know in your work you I know in your work you talk about um, you know finding different parts of yourselves and you know like who how do you identify that in the world and who that is and I think we all have those parts of ourselves that you know we're trying to you know the journey of learning about it and you know self-reflection and I think that this is just a little part of mine and I'm glad to be opening up. This is my classic, Catherine with the Lazy Eye, Short not I Good Poet, by Francine J. Harris. This morning, I heard that you were found in your McDonald's uniform. I heard it while visiting a lake town where empty woodsy highways turned to waterside drives. I would forgot my toothbrush and was rushing with my finger when an old friend who didn't know you, said he heard it like this. You know Catherine. Short, with the lazy eyes. Poet, not a very good one. Yeah, well, she died. The blue on that lake fogs into the horizon like styrofoam. The picnic table full of white people. I asked them where the coffee is, they say at Meyer. I wondered if you thought about getting out of Detroit. When you read at the open mic, you pointed across the street at McDonald's and told us to come see you, Catherine, with the lazy eye, short, and not a good poet. I guess I almost cried. I don't know why, because I didn't like you. This is the first time I remembered your name. I didn't like how you followed around a married man. That your poem sucked, and that I figured they were all about the married man. That you reminded me of myself, boy crazy. <laughs> that sometimes I think people just don't tell me that I'm kind of, well, slow. Catherine, with the lazy eye, short, and not a good poet. I didn't like your lazy eye, always looking at me that you called me by my first name. I didn't like you since the first time I saw you at McDonald's. You had a mop, and you were letting some homeless dude flirt with you. I wondered then if you thought that was the best you could do. I wondered then if it was Catherine, with the lazy eye, short, and not a good poet. You were too silly to wind up dead in the abandoned building. I didn't like you because what was I supposed to tell you? What? Don't let them look at you like that, Catherine. Don't let them get you alone. You don't get to laugh like that, like nothing's gonna get you. Not everyone will forgive the slow girl, Catherine. With the fucked up eye, poetry suck. must knew better. I avoid you in the hallway. I avoid you in the lunch line. I avoid you in the lake. I avoided you, my lazy eye. Catherine, with one hideous eye, shit poetry for boys again? You should have been immune, you were supposed to be a cartoon, your body was supposed to be as twisted as it was going to get. The short, not a good poet, Catherine, with no eye, no more. I avoided you, hated it when you said my name, I really want to leave Detroit, and the short, lazy, not a good poet, shit. Somewhere, someone has already asked, what was she like? and a woman has brought out her wallet and said, this is her. This is my beautiful baby. Thank you. Woo! Oh, there's more. No, it's so beautiful. And this is my response to that classic poem, to that poet. My grandmother often warns me. These streets are paved for a man's way to him. Strutting these roads are innate. Untaught, I am just passing by, and it is not their nature to let me through. I remember the day I was counting my steps because one last step and one step closer home and my backpack was getting heavy. It looked like rain. One less step home with two more blocks to go. It was 3.30 when I locked eyes with you. If I kept going, maybe I would have been fine if I focused on my steps and the blocks and the time. But I felt your eyes watch me cross the street through Venice. It made me fidget six seconds on the pedestrian sign telling me to keep walking, keep walking, walk home. I tried to ignore you, but I saw you again when we reached Genesee Avenue. I wondered how far you'd let me get. Cause now I'm two steps, too slow, two blocks away and all you needed was six seconds and it's going on four. I gotta be home before the street lamps come on. Posts of illuminating light plotted around this city for my security, but in the dark, light only casts shadows and it's easy to be a target. When lurking hands can hide, you gave me no privacy. Watched my body and figured you'd take it, figured she'll be worth the gas money $2.87 287 dollars 87 a gallon is steep, but $3 was all you needed to make me feel cheap like Catherine. Dead in the abandoned building, she was too silly. They warned her, don't let them look at you like that. Don't let them get you alone. But no one warned me about the man that followed me home. They'll say I'm boy crazy, say you are no victim, and this trespasser shall not be fined for these physical violations. So my grandmother warned me. Baby, bundle up. These boys are out for blood and bruises is what they will give you. Street gutters muffle our cries, cement squares painted in graffiti engraved, here lies her purity. My grandmother used to walk home, buy tortilla chips from the local liquor store until the man that looked like her uncle told her she could get a better deal behind the counter. So. If hyped up school skirts is the equivalent to corn chips and chevron receipts, let my grandmother know that I will be brave. Drop my gentle ways so the boys know I've been raised by men too.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this journey.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank you. Give my mother- poets get a signed copy of my book and a small honorarium. I think it's important that we pay artists, and even if they're high school students, right? So, Because you're amazing. Thank you so much. Okay. Just drag it. Flat leg. For those
2: of you watching the game, it's
0: halftime. Stanford, We have a lot of Stanford people in the audience. I think we're behind six to seven at the half. All right. So I'm going to be reading. I'm Julie Livcock Haynes. I'm the author of Real American. This is my prose poetry memoir on race and racism and what it's been like to be me over my 49 years. Um, uh, I call it a prose poetry memoir because there are places across these 280 pages where I try to let um, the prose breathe or contract in response to the point I'm trying to make. So I sometimes violate the rules of syntax. I sometimes um, let the words do what they seem to want to do. So if you get this book and you read it and you wonder, was this a mistake? Was this intended? How come there's only one sentence on this page? Or why is it like this? Did she mean this? Yes, she meant it. I meant it. It's all, every bit of it, intentional. Um, Most people who... Um, st- people who study writing people who write people who read are aware that um, typically a book has an arc to it that we're meant as writers to take our readers on some kind of journey um, by creating conflict or tension or suspense and so on kind of ratcheting that up to a certain point you know and then there's the climax and then the denouement. Um it's sort of a classic way to think about um, to plot my book has a pit instead of an arc So if the arc is a letter A, my book is more like a letter V, and the nine parts go like this. It begins like this, an American childhood, becoming the other, desperate to belong, self-loathing, emerging, declaring, Black Lives Matter, onward. So that's the journey that I take in this book, and today I'm going to try to just read you some excerpts from across that journey so you can get a sense of what the book is about. All right. Um, I guess the one thing you may need to know in advance is uh, I am an African-American, but I have a, a white mother and a black father. And that will turn out to be very relevant in this book. All right. You ready? Mm-hmm. In the lead-up to the 2008 presidential election, a persona stepped to the forefront of public consciousness. That of the real American The real Americans found a voice in their candidates, grew in number, became a mob who raised slogans, signs, fists, and arms, who longed to make America great, normal, regular, white, again. These newly emboldened real Americans issue angry orders to the rest of us. If you don't like it, go back to where you came from. There is no back to where I came from. You stole my homeland from me, me from my homeland, I mean. I don't even know where it is, literally. I came from Sylvie. I am the untallied, unpaid, unrepented damages of one of America's founding crimes. I come from people who endured the psychocultural genocide of slavery, reconstruction, and Jim Crow who began to find a place here really only quite recently amid strides toward effecting a more perfect union of liberty and justice for all. I am Sylvie's great, 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 great granddaughter. She was a slave on a plantation in the late 1700s in Charleston, South Carolina, the harbor town through which close to one in two African slaves entered America over the centuries. Sylvie bore three children by her master, Joshua Eden, by which I mean he raped her. There is no consent in slavery. I come from people who survived what America did to them. Ain't I a real American? When the amorphous mob harumphs about the needs and rights of real Americans, they don't picture me, people like me. But is anyone more a product of America than those of us formed by America in an angry war with herself? The contradiction of being less than in a nation whose forming documents speak of liberty and justice for all plagued me for much of my young adult life. I'm so American, it hurts. That was from It Begins Like This. Now we're in an American childhood. I'm just going to read a brief bit here to give you some sense of me as a little girl. A year later, I'm in fifth grade. A year later, we moved to Reston, Virginia, a planned community located just outside of Washington, D.C., boasting a sort of utopian commitment to racial and socioeconomic diversity. President Jimmy Carter had appointed Daddy to be his assistant surgeon general with responsibility for running the Health Services Administration in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. It was 1977. On a school field trip to our nation's capital with my fifth-grade classmates, I felt a swell of admiration for America and a surge of pride to be American as I stared up at the gleaming white Washington Monument, heard my voice echo as I walked around Lincoln in his chair, traced my fingers over the bronze plaques. We walked back to our bus in a gaggle and for a few moments were caught in the jumble of people in their gray trench coats trying to hurry down sidewalks to and from their jobs. I stepped to the side so they could pass. Important people worked in this city. I knew my daddy was one of them. Back at home in Reston, I had black friends, Indian friends and Jewish friends, as well as white friends. There was even another black family on my street for the very first time in my life with a daughter named Amanda. Amanda was a few years younger than me, but we could both sense that it was very important to our parents that we become friends. And we did become friends, genuinely, telling each other our secrets, playing board games, and sequestering ourselves behind locked doors to review the girly magazines our fathers thought they kept well hidden. (laughs) I felt a mix of wonder and awe as we pawed through page spreads, of creamy white skin. Over the years, I did extremely well in school, was a student government representative, sold Girl Scout cookies, and tied a thick yellow ribbon to the strong tree that stood at our curb in honor of the American hostages in Iran. I adored Daddy. He was 50 when I was born, and my childhood coincided with the heyday of his career, which began against all odds amid the racial hatred of the segregated Jim Crow South, Oklahoma. I was his last child of five, the product of his second child to my mother, and I knew from the way his eyes twinkled whenever he looked at me that he loved me no matter what. He gave me a variety of nicknames, Old Spork, Knucklehead, which sounds crude to my grown ears, but then, spoken in the butter of his baritone, it felt like melted love. He never had to call for me twice. I came running every single time. When I was little and skinned my knee, he pulled me up onto his tall lap, kissed me, and asked with all seriousness how I was going to become Miss America with that scar. I didn't know then that no black woman had yet been crowned Miss America, and that no black woman would be crowned Miss America until 1983. Instead, I heard in daddy's words that I was beautiful. Perhaps the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. We all called him Daddy, even my mother. He was formidable, commanding, gruff, loving, and funny. I hung on to his every word, whether it was, Baby, bring me my cigarettes, or a well-placed retort to the news recited by the anchorman on TV. Daddy was the protagonist, the lead. Daddy was the son. Beauty pageants weren't my thing, though. I wanted to be something more like president. By the end of my junior year in high school, by which time we were back in Wisconsin, I'd been elected vice president of my class for the third year in a row. And in the fall of my senior year, the student council elected me president of that governing body. I went on to be one of four presidents of my class at Stanford University and one of four elected class leaders of my graduating class at Harvard Law School. I was on track to live the American dream, through hard work, big dreams, and a bit of luck, to become whomever I wanted. Mine was in many ways a very American childhood, and with the buttress of money and influence that came from my father's professional success, it was also a childhood of material comfort that set me up for a privileged life. Now I'm moving to the section, Becoming the Other. That I never liked the 4th of July, I couldn't understand it, though, because I adored the parades, songs, and flags, the neighborhood barbecues, the explosion of firecrackers, and the smart looks on everyone's faces that revealed the innate understanding that our country was better, and by extension, we the people were better, than the rest of the world. My mother was the one to inform me of Daddy's opinion about the Fourth, and she did so in a whispered, sideways-glance kind of way, with no explanation as to why he felt it. I understood from the way she said it that it had something to do with Daddy's past, his experiences, his blackness. Her silent why bespoke pain too painful to discuss, so I never asked. Didn't think it related to the America I was inhabiting, anyway. Didn't think I was black in the ways he was. Thought America was beyond all that. I was wrong. Looking back over the years of even my earliest childhood, The clues were everywhere. Back in New York, where I lived as a very little girl, three, four, five, six, seven. Back in New York, I'd begun to sense that something might be wrong with people with dark skin. I lacked the language to describe it and the intellect to analyze it, but I felt the chill of it in my bones, the red-hot heat of it surging up the back of my neck when I was out and about with Daddy. Daddy was six foot two and lean, with a neat, tightly coiled afro he kept supple with afro-sheen, and skin that was dark and crinkly like the top layer of a brownie. On those occasional weekend days when he wasn't traveling or busy at the desk in his den, he'd take, he'd take me with him on an errand in town, and every now and then to an event in Manhattan. Holding his hand, walking down the local street or a bustling city sidewalk, I noticed that some strangers stared at him with eyes that steamed like a cauldron. As if they could brand him like an animal with their searing focus if he dared to look them in the eye. I'd look up at my tall daddy for reassurance, pleading with my small brown eyes to know what was going on. But he gripped my hand tighter, kept his eyes focused straight ahead, pursed his lips, and kept walking. When I walked down the same streets with my white mother, nobody steamed at her that way. The glances she got as a white woman holding the tiny hand of a small brown child were far more subtle. It took a lot longer for me to discern and label those looks as pity and disdain. By choosing to marry my father, she crossed a line. By choosing to have me. I'm now back in fifth grade in Reston, Virginia. In fifth grade at Lake Ann Elementary School in Reston, Virginia, one of my white friends got pulled into the gifted and talented group she was smart, but no smarter than I was, I knew. And now she was getting to do cool projects and puzzles, but not me. I went home and mentioned it to my mom, who came to meet with my teacher, Mr. Polanski, a few days later. Polanski was not persuaded. So my mom escalated to the principal, this time insisting that I be tested. They brought in someone from the district to give me an IQ test, mailed the results to our house. Mom thought I wasn't watching when she opened the envelope, read the results, and squirreled the letter away in a drawer. I was put in the gifted group soon after, and shortly after that, Mr. Polanski announced to our entire class, apparently all it takes to be gifted is for your parents to meet with the principal. But in the privacy of an afternoon home alone, I peeked at the letter from the district. The raw score was 99th percentile. As my teacher stood smug at the front of the classroom, it was the first time in my young life I uttered a very silent, Fuck you. (laughs) I'm now in high school, my all-white high school, in Middleton, Wisconsin. 1,200 students and me. I spent a lot of time at my best friend Diana's house, and she had mine. One day during sophomore year, when I'd gone over to her house to hang out, I found her in the basement rec room watching a movie on her VCR. It was gone with the wind. She looked up at me and said hello, then she turned her gaze back to the television screen and sighed like a stubborn bell. Wouldn't it have been great to have lived back then? Uh No? (laughs) Why not? Because I would have been a slave. Oh, but I mean if you weren't black. But I am black. I don't think of you as black. I think of you as normal. Summer after sophomore year, I was on an exchange trip to France with a different school. I stayed behind after our language lesson one day to ask a professor a question, and then found myself walking back to our youth hostel alone. I came upon a small park where a little white girl of no more than 10 was kicking the gravel out of her shoes. As I neared, she stopped what she was doing, looked up at me, and spoke. Pourquoi tu noir? Why are you black? Decades later, I would read the work of Frantz Fanon, who had also had a humiliating encounter with a little white French girl. But on that day, as a 15-year-old walking through Paris, I was alone with just my rudimentary French and my fragile sense of self. Pourquoi tu noir? she demanded. Because I am lucky, I told her. I didn't believe it, but I wanted to. I hope my words would send this little stranger home with some big questions. Maybe they'd even fuck her up a little bit. I didn't mind. As far as I was concerned, she was every white person who would ever question my right to exist, to be a regular person just going through my day without drawing the scrutiny or fascination of others. I didn't want to make excuses or give this little girl a lesson in anthropology. I wanted to fucking shine. I wanted to shine so fucking much that this little white French girl would ache to be me. ache like me. At the start of my senior year in high school, I was serving my class as vice president for the third year in a row and was also elected president of the student council. The Cosby Show debuted on NBC in September. With the show's father, Cliff Huxtable, being a doctor, like my daddy, and the middle daughter, Denise, kind of looking like me, there was finally a fictional family on a TV screen that resembled mine. I was glued to it every Thursday evening, reading it for guidance about how to be someone like me. I turned 17 that November, a few weeks after the presidential election that re-elected Ronald Reagan. My best friend Diana made me a huge birthday locker sign filled with words and images she cut from the pages of Tiger Beat and 17 and other teen magazines. She'd woken up extra early to get to school on time to tape it to my ber- to my locker before my arrival. We did this kind of thing for each other. Her birthday was earlier in November, and I festooned her locker just two weeks before. I entered the school and headed left toward my locker, which was located in the bank reserved for seniors in the central hallway near the administration's offices, conveniently conveniently close to everything. Even above the din of student voices and slamming lockers, I could hear my heels clicking with precision on the shiny cement floor. I could already see the birthday locker sign, 50 lockers in front of me, with its five sheets of white paper taped one to the next to the next in a sort of a vertical column with shimmering silver ribbons taped to the top and sides and spiraling out into the hall. I felt a surge of anticipation of the attention I would get that day. A friend shouted happy birthday as I made my way down the hall, and I nodded and smiled and shouted, thanks. When I got to my locker, I stood and admired Diana's creativity, reading from top to bottom all the bits of language and imagery she'd gone to such trouble to cut out and glue on there for me. I opened the locker, put my backpack inside, pulled out the books I needed for my first two classes, then I turned and smiled at someone else saying "Happy birthday." Clanged the locker door shut and twisted the combination lock a few times. I strode down the main corridor toward my first class, feeling like I owned the place. Some unknown minutes later, someone took a thick black marker and wrote N I G E R in three places on my birthday locker sign, even spelled incorrectly. I knew what they meant. I spotted it in late morning during the passing time between classes, and immediately my mouth went dry. I found a marker and crossed out each iteration of the hateful word. At day's end, I took the sign home. In the privacy of my bedroom, I pulled my senior year scrapbook from the bookshelf above my desk and opened it to the first blank page. There, I pasted my birthday locker sign, accordion style, so it could be completely unfolded to resemble what it had looked like hanging on my locker. Before closing the scrapbook, I took a pair of scissors and, like a surgeon excising tumors, removed the three iterations of the shameful word, then threw them in the trash. I closed the scrapbook and returned it to the shelf containing the history of my childhood. Over the Christmas holiday, I typed my college applications on a brand new Apple IIe computer my parents were among the first to buy. In March 1985, the first internet domain name, Symbolics.com, was registered. In April, I accepted an offer of admission to Stanford University. A classmate, Harris, had applied to Stanford, but had not gotten in. Harris and I were in pre-calculus together, the highest math class at our school, and it was held during the seventh and final period of the day. One day in April, right after the bell rang, signaling the end of class, the end of the school day, Harris's father walked in, sat down at an empty desk next to mine and began talking to me in a playful tone. So, you got into Stanford. I looked up at my friend Harris and silently asked, why is your dad here? (laughs) Then I replied, yes. So, what were your SAT scores? I responded, do you think it's fair that you got into Stanford over Harris when his scores were higher than that? Harris was not president of the student council. Our grades were roughly the same but I had, stolen my, I had stolen his spot at Stanford with my blackness. I would told no one about my locker sign, and I'd go on to tell no one for decades. Not my parents, not the school administration, not my boyfriend, not my best friend, Diana. For more than 20 years, though, the truth of that day hunkered down inside of me and metastasized. I was the nigger of my town. This is the section desperate to belong. I'm now a Stanford student. It's spring quarter, and I have received a 2.0. I've earned a 2.0 in my first quarter. And I'm sure it's the evidence that I've been waiting for that a black female student from the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, doesn't actually have what it takes to make it at Stanford. I'm now taking a civil rights class with 200 people. Later that spring, Professor Steyer asks a very tough question in our civil rights class, which was not unusual. What is unusual is that I know exactly what he's getting at, and I ache to respond. But to date, I never raise my hand in a class at Stanford, and still don't dare to do so. Besides, this is obviously a really complicated question. No one else is raising their hand. My fear of being wrong, of being black and wrong, silences me, even though I know I have a good idea here. Scanning the room for potential volunteers, Professor Steyer glances at me. Something in my face must be showing him my brain is working overtime. He nods once at me and raises his eyebrows, signaling that I should speak up. Well, I begin, clearing my throat, playing with my hair. And then I keep on talking. Steyer, never one to downplay a dramatic moment, Bolts his arms across his chest, leans back on one heel, and starts nodding his head vigorously as I talk. So I keep going. My classmates, watching the clear evidence in Steyer's behavior that I'm saying good stuff, begin scribbling down what I am saying. I am teaching my classmates. I am speaking from a place grounded in knowledge and bolstered by a bit of confidence, with a voice pushing through the brambles out into the clearing This is the starting line of my efforts to be better than whites expect a black person can be. A race I'll run and try to win for the next 20 years. Now I'm going to do a big fast forward. That was Desperate to Belong and then we have Self-Loathing is the next section and now I am in the section called Emerging. I am now a dean at Stanford. I have been a lawyer, and now I'm associate vice provost for undergraduate education and dean of freshman. A consultant has been brought in, a coach, has been brought in to help us work better with one another, the senior staff reporting to a particular vice provost. When she was first brought in, I thought it was my job to tell her what was wrong with everybody else. <laughs> After about nine months of working with the vice provost and his direct reports, Mary Ellen, the coach, has conducted a 360 degree review on each of us. And she is ready to tell me how I'm regarded by my colleagues. By now, I trust her enough to be able to listen to the feedback. Too emotional. Too aggressive. Might as well give me a list of stereotypes of women and black people and black women and tell me not to do any of those things, I tell her. She lets me continue. Yes, I have a tendency to blurt things out when I get really moved by something or frustrated, but my emotion is warranted. Is it getting you what you want? she asks. When I practice law, my passion and anger could be channeled into useful argument. But in academia, it seemed to just push people away, and then I'm the one who has to apologize. I want to know why I'm this way, I plead. That could take 20 years of therapy, Mary Ellen says, chuckling. How about we focus on when you're this way, so you can start to notice the emotion coming, and then decide what, if anything, you want to do about it. What, if anything, I want to do about it? Mary Ellen isn't siding with stereotype, I realize. She's telling me that my power lies in being in charge of my voice. With Mary Ellen's help, I begin taking notice of my behavior. When I feel a strong emotion coming, instead of acting on it, I try to pay attention to what I am feeling and where I feel it in my body and what triggered the feeling, and I write it all down. Over a few months of this close attention to myself, of mindfulness, I begin to be able to sense emotion coming. I can then pause, ask myself what is going on, and tell myself I am okay while the conversation around me keeps going. I begin to see that the trigger is a feeling of being overlooked, doubted, or dismissed, I begin to see that my fear that I will be judged is not good enough makes me desperate to prove constantly that they are wrong. I begin to see that I can't control anyone else's opinion or behavior. I see that the only thing I can be in control of if I work hard at it is myself. With Mary Ellen's guidance, I begin to see that I can love and accept myself regardless of what others may or may not be thinking of me. I can choose whether to speak or not to be silent or not to go off on someone or not rather than let those impulses simply happen to me as our coaching begins to impact me I feel renewed with the help of Mary Ellen a white Buddhist Aikido master I begin to emerge into a healthy black self the day comes when I summon the guts to tell Mary Ellen one of my most painful secrets that as a child I hated being black was afraid of black people. This gut spilling fear sharing loosens up knots of shame in my psyche, loosens the muscles not just in my mind but in my soul. Speaking this awful truth out loud through tears needs the pain out of me. The relief feels astonishingly good. I wake up the next day no longer feeling the vice grip of racism that I had embodied that asked me to prove I was good enough despite being black. I look in the mirror and allow myself to see not what whites might see or what they might want to see or what they might want not to see, not conforming to what they admire, to see my actual self, to see the color of my face and body, paper bag brown in fall and spring, high yellow in winter, milk chocolate in summer, and accept that some in America see me as the other, and being fine with that. To see my skin and hair and hear my, quote, white speech and decide that it is not up to some committee on blackness to anoint me as black. It took me 40 years to stop twisting and turning this way and that in response to how I feared and hoped people of both races would see me. I drive to work that day, having shed the loathing of my black self and by extension of all black people from my eyes which had prevented me from really seeing other black people. I look into the eyes of one, then another, and then another black person, and I feel my heart swell with feelings like compassion, admiration, love, even desire. As if discovering their existence, their magnificence, for the first time. It might as well have been the first time. Like climbing out of a deep depression, I hadn't known I was this afflicted until I wasn't. White Americans, you are infatuated with the Statue of Liberty whose tablet contains words of welcome for all, who did in fact welcome you and your ancestors, and you are simultaneously infatuated with carving lines and borders between who does and does not belong here, with yourselves on one side of the line and the other half of America on the other. You think your whiteness makes you better than the rest of us. You make us your scapegoat, your excuse for your violent rage. It's not all of us. Stop saying it's all of us, you say, my white brethren. You want to be treated as an individual instead of a stereotype. And I will get out of bed anyway and go out into the streets of America to do my work, to find true love, to raise children who know how to work hard and be kind to others, to speak. This is in a section declaring... We, the people, cannot continue to abide the stories of police and civilians on witness stands telling us that in just seeing our black bodies, they were terrified. You have to be terrified for a justifiable reason. God gave us this black and brown skin. The skin God gave us is not a reason for you to be justifiably terrified. We are terrified of you. We continue to try to forgive, to live My son, I look at the faces of Trayvon, Freddie, little Tamir, who was all of 12, and I see you, my son, my precious son, my beautiful black boy, so smart and bookish and inquisitive and philosophical. I see you grow taller, grow muscles, grow a man's face, and I weep for the future self who will leave this home and discover that in pockets of this great country you are loathed, feared, and worse. My son, you did not ask to be born. I chose you. I asked you to be mine. I gave you a skin of brown, and you are exquisite beyond measure. This is the section Black Lives Matter. You, hiding there behind your draperies across the street, it was you acting like Zimmerman who called the cops about a, quote, disturbance in your neighborhood. You, who said there were multiple juveniles who do not live in the area, or, quote, have permission to be there, which you know, because you guard the white experience, and you know who belongs at the pool and who does not. It was you who saw a black man getting into a nice car and decided he was stealing it and called the police who trailed him, pulled him over, and pounced five at a time on his 25 year old black body, this former student of mine, this man now getting a PhD in engineering at Northwestern, driving his own damn car. It is you who call your dogs to bring their dogs to bring us down, to keep America white, to buff us out of your existence. You want to stand your ground which means arm the whites. You think, if given a choice, any of us would have asked to be born black in America? You think we want to be the object of your evident fear as you pass us on streets and crowd away from us in elevators? In the wake of the Zimmerman verdict, Questlove wrote so hauntingly about this. He described himself as a six-foot-two, 300-pound black man, and he pleaded, I mean, what can I do? I have to be somewhere on Earth, Correct. Correct. Sometimes I do wonder, where is God in all of this? I almost vomited when I heard an American doctor thank God for saving him from Ebola. It was the fall of 2014, those terrible few months when the scourge of Ebola had once again reared its head in a few African countries, and we Americans were fearful that, despite our best efforts at isolation, an African plague could invade our borders. A Liberian man named Thomas Eric Duncan had already succumbed to it here in the U.S. while visiting family after showing up with symptoms summarily disregarded in the Dallas hospital where he sought help. By the time anyone realized he was more than a black man with a fever, the disease had consumed him as it does any victim, eating him from the inside out, liquefying him. The hospital has since apologized to Duncan's family for systemically denying him adequate care. Oh, but the same tragic fate was not met by this white American doctor, Dr. Kent Brantley, I heard on NPR one day. Brantley had become infected with Ebola while treating patients in Liberia and had been airlifted back home to become the first Ebola patient ever successfully treated in the U.S. Emerging as a survivor, the victor, from his intense treatment at Emory Hospital in Atlanta, they held a news conference for him where he stood behind a podium with his enormous team of doctors and nurses behind him and declared, God saved my life. And what went unstated but implied was that God didn't give a shit about the 1,350 Africans who had already died of the disease in its recent epidemic to date. To be an American is to see God's hand in the US healthcare system and in the experimental serum known as ZMAP, which frankly was the first human ever to try. To be an American is to believe God plays favorites and that of all his children, he favors Americans most of the time. To be truly devout, though, is to be a family member of one of the nine blacks murdered during Bible study at Mother Emanuel A.M.E. Church in Charleston, South Carolina, by self-professed white supremacist Dylan Roof, and to forgive Mr. Roof for killing their loved ones in a house of God, where presumably God was watching. But then I think maybe God did give us a choice. Maybe he gathered a group of souls and asked for volunteers. Maybe he said, now, who wants to go down there and inhabit a black or brown body? Who wants to take that on? Who wants to live a life in America where you may be treated as the scum of the earth? Who will walk among white people and be their opportunity to learn compassion? And the bravest souls looked around at each other and raised their hands. Thank you. So, I would love to take questions, comments, brief. Yes.
2: Um, you know, you'll have to explain to me because I never understood these kids, these parents who fought their battles. Like, did Harrison sick that guy on him? Or is it, is it their only volition those parents walk into situations like that? I never understood that. Which, stuff. did who seek what? When you got into Stanford, that kid didn't oh. Harrison. Harrison? Harris. Harris, okay. I mean, how did the dad get? You, you must have figured out the dynamic. Here.
0: No, 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 I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, did the kid egg the dad on? I have no idea. Uh, I don't know if it was the kid. I don't know if it was the dad. I don't know if it was a kid and dad. Um, but it was just this unfettered, uh, white privileged sense that uh, he was entitled to that spot and that I wasn't. So there was like a, we know that I'm smart to know it was. It had come down to our SAT scores, apparently, and he decided that that, um, that that made all the difference. Like I said in the book, I was a president of the student body, and um, and yet for him that was the the deciding factor, and it just played into a larger narrative that black and brown people get spots that um, that are bought to be reserved for white. It's
2: really hard for me to understand these bullying parents because that's not something you do with an underage kid. That's not okay.
0: Sure. And this was 1985, and so maybe we're a little bit more savvy about that now, although I'm not sure that that is true. We have. Thank you.
2: Yeah. How did you thinking about, of <laughs> I sort of think about this book and writing it sort of impact your sort of reflections looking back on your mother and father, or even now, and even how you can yeah. perceive that going
0: forward? Yeah. Um, my father's been gone for 22 years, and um, So toward the end of the book, when I'm really kind of reckoning with everything and tying it all together so that it comes out neatly, um, I say it came time to discuss things with my mother, and I end up doing a tremendous amount of venting at my mother over my father and mother's choices to raise me in an all-white town for high school. The person I'm really wanting to yell at is my father, the black parent, the parent who knew better. My mother, um, you know, my, my mother wasn't able to fight that battle. It was my father's decision about where we would live, And my father said to me in high school, when he saw a photograph of me with a boy that I had a crush on, again, all-white high school, so this was a white boy. He looked at the photo, and he said, baby, white boys will be your friend, but they'll never date you. And I was 14. I couldn't figure out how to say to this man, my daddy, who I adored, um, who was so important in our family and in his profession, I didn't know how to say then why did you move me to an all-white town? Don't I deserve to be loved? I'm a teenager. Why are you saying that that's not important? Are you saying I don't deserve to be loved? I couldn't say that to him then. Um, I said it in my head a lot. Um, so I began to take all of this out on my mom when I came to terms finally with who I am and was able to love myself as a black woman, uh, which happened to me in my, in my early, late 30s and early 40s. I'm 49 now. Um... My heart goes out to white folks raising black and brown kids. My mother is a white woman who chose to marry a black man and have me in a time when it was pretty transgressive to do so. Um, My heart goes out, and I think you have an obligation when you raise a child of color to um, raise them in communities where they'll have friends and mentors, um, where they won't feel like the other, where they won't stand out like a sore thumb. And so... uh, You know, I'm angry and frustrated about that, and yet I know that my parents loved me and believed they were doing the best they could. I'm also a mom. I've got an 18-year-old son, who I address in one section, and a 16-year-old daughter. And I've tried not to repeat my parents' mistakes, but I came to this consciousness, this black-loving self, late in my own life, when I'd already plunked my kids down in Palo Alto, California, which is the Stanford, uh, Stanford, the community surrounding Stanford. It is much more diverse than my high school community was. It's about 42% white, 40% Asian, and within the Asian community of rich breadth of diversity, Chinese American, Korean American, Indian American, but about 2% black, and maybe about 4% Latino. Um, So I often gaze across the San Francisco Bay, Oakland, and Berkeley, which are communities that boast um, a large population, both of them of African Americans, uh, middle class, upper middle class. I often gaze across the Bay and think if I had to do it all over again, I would... I wish I had raised my own family over there. Um, So in that sense, I ended up repeating some of the mistakes my my own parents made. Yes, Kelly. I forgot to acknowledge Kelly. Kelly is the (laughs) manager of education at Get Lit, which is a youth poet organization that uh, Amaya is part of. And so, thank you for being here to support Maya, and thank you for all of you do in the community to support kids in their writing. And
2: thank you for you bringing youth speakers and poets and authors. It's so great. Thank you. Um, question about you: Describe your memoir as prose and poetry. I'm wondering if they're how like how you made the distinction um, or if it was an organic process
0: and if you saw more poetry arising in certain sections of the book mm-hmm. um, and more prose, maybe you could speak a little yes. bit to craft. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Love craft questions. <laughs> um, I left Stanford in 2012 I went back to school to get MFA in a writing to try to write a book. I had a book inside me, in my head, about the harm of helicopter parenting, uh, which I'd done some writing around, but written an op-ed, given speeches, um, but I wasn't confident I could write a book worth reading, you know, over 300 pages. So I went back to school to um, to become a better writer. I did, re- I did write that book. It's called How to Raise an Adult. It came out two and a half years ago. Um, and um, when I wasn't writing about parenting in school, about that, when I was working on that book, I was taking poetry classes and playwriting classes and creative nonfiction classes and um, really enjoying reading and writing poetry. Um, not because I thought I had much talent as a poet. I know you're a poet. I have tremendous respect for poets. <laughs> Um, but because to me the discipline required, demanded by poetry poetry offers us tremendous freedom and discipline is required as well so it's a lovely paradox and I felt that reading and writing poetry strengthened my prose that um, poetry for me is almost like lifting weights or protein powder. It's like the stuff we do that strengthens the larger body, you know? So I think I'm a better prose writer because I also dabble in poetry, both writing and reading poetry. The poetry in the book comes out in the later sections as I become somebody, once I'm in this place of greater self-love and self-acceptance, and I can inhabit this body and this hair and this voice and this skin... And be unapologetic, and stop trying to perform to be what I thought white folks needed me to be, so they wouldn't loathe, disregard, you know, or harm me. Um, my language in the book reflects that more self-loving self, and that's where I get, you know, I get a little bit more poetic on the page. So it's funny because I called it a prose poetry memoir, and then you know, yeah, I discovered that it was. You asked was it intentional or organic? It was more organic. But I discovered over time that it was, and I had given myself a large, bright margin on every page. I drafted it as a word document, of course, but from the beginning, I just took that. Well, from your perspective, I took that margin, I moved it over, and said, "I have access to this much of the page, not the entire page." As a woman of color, this is sort of the omnipresence of whiteness in my life, the dominant narrative, you know, the dominant voice and perspective, and here I am, you know, trying to articulate, you know, what my reality has been. I couldn't have said to you at the outset, oh, I'm putting the omnipresence of whiteness on every page. But in reflecting on the choices, I could see, you know, that, that choice was actually a beautiful one, and it allows the page to convey what it is. I'm also trying to get the words to convey. Um, so I guess I discovered along the way that that it was prose poetry. And then I had labeled it that and was reviewing an early draft, and I was on page ten and twelve and fifty, and I'm like, "Where's the poetry?
1: <laughs> what the hell? You can't call it that." Idea.
0: And then I realized, no, no, I wasn't the person who could speak or think that way in the early years. Mm-hmm. So you know, the language loosens up and becomes both more precise and more fluid um, uh, as I as I emerge into my older self.
2: Yes. Um, you know, it's very interesting times where a set of children were, were sent into schools and told to solve their parents' problems. And then, you know, I witnessed this kind of wonderful, multicultural blending of families. And I've seen the first, in a lot of instances, because of the generation I want to. And there's so much of this literature emerging now of the children of these marriages. So, Danzi Senna and some of these books, I'm just wondering how you feel about a body of literature that's expressing new ideas in
0: America. Yeah. So, Danzi's uh, on the back of my book, uh, she's one of the blurb writers on my book. Danzi Senna, uh, a fellow mixed race person um, who wrote, has written some beautiful work, including Caucasia, which is a novel. Um, told from the perspective of a mixed race child of a black mom and a white dad, two daughters she's the younger daughter, she resembles uh, the white parent and her older sister resembles the dad when the parents divorce, each child goes and lives with the parent who more resembles them, so Danzi's book is a narrator basically passing as white in the white world but knows Mm -hmm. she is mixed race, knows she is of color, it's the 70s so the language was different but um, she basically, you know, lives in Caucasia and and tells us what it's like in, in novel form um, and so mixed race literature has been um, certainly um, exploding in the last few decades as we, uh, the mixed race population have moved from this sort of anomalous weird, fascinating, exotic creature status to a uh, more critical mass in, in a number of communities around America um, my own personal identity has shifted from being black as I was told I was uh, to being biracial, to being black and I'm going to tell you briefly what I mean by that I was born in 1967, and parents, uh, and Loving versus Virginia was, you know, no, it was 67. And yeah, is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. So the, the Supreme Court case saying my parents' marriage was not illegal uh, was handed down the year I was born. And um, parents of mixed race kids were told Rick, tell your child that they're black. Because America will see them as black, it's sort of irrelevant whether there's any white ancestry. You've seen as black, treated as black, and so this child has to have a healthy black identity. That was the conventional wisdom. There's a lot of, you know, correctness about that. A lot that's right about that. Unfortunately, my parents articulated that, but they didn't raise me in communities where there was any cultural um, reinforcement. reinforcement or nourishment, you know, sustenance around that identity. So. I didn't have black peers, I didn't have black mentors, we didn't have belonging or connections to black institutions. So they said, you are black, but it was sort of on me to figure out, what does that mean? Here I am in an all-white town where, you know, my best friend is sort of sighing over Gone with the Wind, it would have been great to have lived back then. (laughs) Or, you know, in a more benign sense, I'm walking down the street at a pool, actually, in Wisconsin, trying to get a lounge chair, and some lady walks past me and stops and turns around and says, oh my gosh, you're so tan." You know, like tan was the best she, and I was dark brown because it would have been summer. And, um, you know, and so you know, a little darker than this, but there was nothing in her worldview that said I might be of a different race. You know, I just sort of oddity, the sense that I was an oddity. So black, it was my identity in my head, trying to figure out what that meant, watching the Cosby show for clues. And then biracial comes along. Late 80s, you know, it becomes a term that people are starting to use biracial, multiracial, and I cling to it like a life preserver. Um, the book I think I described it as like getting an organ transplant it's like all of a sudden I can breathe again because I don't have to deny my white mother and I have a reason to a way to explain why I'm different you know that I don't think of you as black I think of you as normal line you know that sort of friend trying to pay me a compliment like you're not black like the blacks I fear or loathe or discard right um, so I'm losing my train of thought sorry So anyway, um, biracial comes, multiracial comes. I cling to it because I don't have to deny my white mother. And I cling to it for probably 15 or 20 years. Um, And then finally, doing the work with this coach, as I'm able to come to the truth of the pain of my existence as a black child, as I'm able to finally say to myself, to my consciousness, and then out loud to this coach, the various fears and loathings I had about myself and about my people, um, when I was finally able to acknowledge that, that essentially that American racism had contorted me and distorted my sense of self. Once I was able to get all of that out, it was as if I all of a sudden emerged into this healthy black self, like all the black people all of a sudden were just smiling at me. It was, all, it was literally like they had all gotten a memo on the Stanford <laughs> campus saying, smile at Julie today, which is of course not possible, but I couldn't see them and be seen by them until I could see myself. So, when that happened, then I was able to identify as black, and and I do, and I will accept and biracial um, as the fact of my upbringing, my parentage, but I located a a sense of self within blackness, the self I could love within the black community. And over the years of my life, I'm 49, the black community has become much more embracing of the diversity among (laughs) us. So it may have once been the case that you had to fit into this box, walk, talk, think, you know, dance, believe you know, eat a certain way to be black and we've expanded that definition so we welcome more, you know, into the, into the community of black, of black and blackness than, than ever before. So. Sounds like such a job. It's a job, but I'm glad that I've had the job. I'm glad to be right now. I'm glad to have been on this journey. And your son is an easier time. Well, my son's 18, so you know, he might write a memoir one day and <laughs> tell us. <laughs> um, I hope so. I think I've made race um, a much more... Um,
2: Cause he, had um, an upbringing like first,
0: he has a white Jewish dad. My husband of 25 years, who I've been with for 30 years. Um, I contend with the choice of a white father for my black son. You know, it's sort of a tautology or a reverse tautology in that, I'm not sure, but one will tell me, in that um, I wouldn't have the son without the white husband, right? He is the product of me and my husband, right? But I have given my black son a white father. And I regret that because I've given him a, a father who can't teach him how to be a black man in America. Okay? I've done that to my son. So he has, he has issues too? Well, he has to, we have to have to talk with him as any black parent does and we try to prepare him to be smart and safe out of the world and, and simultaneously we want him to love himself and not to loathe himself and not to take on that, um, the stereotype, the negative stereotype that so many hold toward black men and boys, you know, it's this, it's this careful balance we have to do raising black kids um, to help them be safe and smart out there and come home safely and um, not to let the fear of that and all that that means result in them hating themselves um, or the skin there it's a very careful act so I think my son is well adjusted I think you know he's making his way in the world well I'm just acknowledging this is a really complex issue and I don't know the answer to it um, and I don't know that he knows the answer to it. He's congratulations dis- on your marriage. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, he's you know he's discovering himself. My daughter looks more like her dad, so she often gets the message that she doesn't match me or her brother. When she started high school, two years behind him, somebody said, "Who's that guy? You, had, you know, you're dating that guy. I Saw you with your arm around him." She said, "No, that's my brother." She, the person said, "He's your brother?" That sort of you don't match. That can't be. Or I pick her up somewhere. She's your mother. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how my daughter chooses to identify where she can locate a sense of belonging. And fundamentally, what we're all eager for and hungry for is to belong somewhere. You know, one of my lines in here is, we all just want to know we matter to America, to someone. And um, we're all looking for that community where we can be ourselves and be loved and embraced simply for being who we are. And I don't know, speaking to you right now, nor nor is it mine to declare... Um, where my daughter will locate a sense of belonging. I just hope she does. Grant. We're about to hit the anniversary of the presidential election. Yeah. And this last year has been pretty uh, dynamic. And many of the, while you were working on this book, many important milestones were happening at the same time. Yeah. And I'm wondering, compared to a year ago, how your feelings about what you're doing now has change in that um, context, or like before the election a year ago, whether the discussion you thought you might be participating in, what it's like now in the, in the context of the broader discussion in the country, which is yeah. so much more yeah. pronounced now, yeah. when your book happens to come out right. right in the middle of it. Yes. People have said, oh, it's a great time for your book to come out. You know, and I say, yeah, none of us would have wished for this time. But here it is. Yeah, it's great for the book. Those of us who were paying attention, who did not have the luxury of not paying attention, have heard the rhetoric, the angry rhetoric of white nationalism building for 10 years. You know, they were just out of their minds at the notion of Barack Obama as a candidate, right? And the birtherism movement and all of that. And the ways in which he was disrespected through language, um, through rhetoric. As president, I mean, we who were paying attention saw that coming. We also saw them buying more guns. We saw um, them gathering, you know, in sort of a militia sense. We saw this coming. Now, none of us, I think, saw him coming, right? None of us, few of us predicted this time, you know, a year ago, that Donald Trump would be our president. But the he was simply the evidence of the unleashed whiteness, the unleashed white nationalism. Uh, deciding we're going to take our country back. We all know what "Make America Great Again" means. So um, when I when I did this manuscript, this was my so I, got, I wrote the first book. It was still in the MFA program. They said you got to graduate. I said great. I'm going to write another book because I love being at school. <laughs> uh, so then I was writing about race because race was what kept coming up when I wasn't writing about the parenting book. And I completed my thesis, graduated, sold it to my editor, of my first book, my publisher. And she reviewed the draft and she said, you know, Julie, you've referred to Donald Trump three times and I think you should tone down your references to Donald Trump because by the time this book comes out, he'll be a footnote to history and it'll date the book if you've made a reference to some guy that's a footnote to history. Well, he's not a footnote to history. I don't mention him by name, but I do mention what it felt like in November. i feeling it coming, like the weight of an intruder on the stairs. You can feel it coming. You know, uh, we won. Black lives don't matter. There's a new sheriff in town. You know, your kind isn't wanted. And a girl gets the N-word written on her locker. So that's sort of a full circle piece. Um, so I would wish for us to be here. Probably, I'm probably. i guessing no, no one in this room would wish us uh, to be in this moment in American history. But this is our moment. This is happening. And I think um, the experience of, of marginalized people who are relegated to some status of less American um, than white Americans... Um, is a is a very present and urgent issue for us to grapple with. Um, we say black lives matter too not to, not to be black supremacists. We're not black supremacists. We're simply saying we matter too. Please stop shooting our children. Please stop shooting us when we've done something simple like try to sell CDs in front of a liquor store, in front of a convenience store. You know, please let us go get Skittles and a cold drink and come home alive. That's what black lives matter means. Um, And so um, I'm hoping that this book, in addition to being a book that makes black folks and brown folks and mixed folks and other folks of color and queer folks, anyone who's been made, immigrants, poor folks, anyone who's been made to feel like the other in America, I'm hoping that in some of my stories I'll nod their head and feel seen. But I'm hoping beyond those populations, you know, that anyone willing to read it might feel an interest in learning the story of the other. We're all the other to somebody, and we're so sorely lacking in compassion and empathy for the other in this country. Um, I'm interested in radical compassion. I'm interested in us listening to people whose voices are historically marginalized in this country. Um, we, those of us who have privilege, and I, I have privilege. I'm an upper-middle-class person. I'm black, and I'm light-skinned, and light skin is privilege, and upper-middle-class is privilege. We who have privilege of whatever kind must listen to the voices of those who are marginalized. We must believe the marginalized people telling their stories, particularly kids, kids who say, "This happened to me in school. I had this experience." Too often we say, "Are you sure? You think it really happened that way?" You know, shouldn't you give them the benefit of the doubt? I'm sure they didn't mean it. You know, I just had a high school friend up in Denver. Hear me last night, and he and I recite the thing about the high school friends gone with the wind. I don't think of you as black. I don't. I think of you as normal. He said, oh, "You know, shouldn't you give her the benefit of the doubt, uh-huh. Julie?" I said, "You know what? I've been giving her the benefit of the doubt all my life. I am now telling what it is like to experience these things. We call microaggressions, and we say microaggressions, and that implies they're tiny and insignificant. But the point of this book is, over time, they add up and they distort and contort us, and we should stop doing that." is this a victim narrative? if you think it's a victim narrative then America's a bully you know I'm speaking up about what it's been like to be me knowing that there are a whole lot of folks who've had it far far worse than me knowing that with my privilege maybe someone will listen to me tell my story and maybe it'll make folks a little bit more empathetic to others so radical compassion is listen, believe and then use whatever privilege you have to flank the less powerful person to say this happened to this kid I believe her you know, he says this happened. I believe him, and using our power, whatever it is, our privilege to, to, you know, to flank that person, so that they have a chance to have agency in their lives and and ultimately uh, reach a level of self acceptance that um, may otherwise elude them. That felt like a wrap. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> I